we are, we are continuing our series on the king's arrival. And uh, this month, obviously, it's, it's all about the coming of Jesus and uh, how the coming of Jesus brought hope. And last week, we talked about how God's plan for the king to come uh, was a good plan. It started in the garden. If y'all remember Genesis 3, where we talked about, uh, it was the first mention of the gospel, right? We talked about how the king would come through the lineage of Abraham and uh, through the Israelites. And we talked about the different kings that the Israelites, um, the Israelites got those kings because they wanted a king so bad. But the, the point was, is that God, actually didn't want them to have a king like they wanted, but they got that king, and guess what? They got all the following kings after that. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then I'd encourage you to go back to last week and kind of check it out and catch up. But we kind of walk through that timeline, and today we're going to be kicking into uh, the gear of actually Jesus coming to this earth, being born. And we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place. In this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, this was a problem. What it means by before they came together mean was before those two people came together. Okay. All right. Good. Just so you know, the Bible is saying that. And that's a problem in case you didn't know. There's a little bit of scandal around that. The fact that, I mean, isn't it amazing that God would choose this way for King Jesus to come to the earth through, uh, through gossip and through, did you, did you see Mary over there? Like, I'm pretty sure her, her and Joseph, like, I don't know if they've uh, gotten married yet. You know, you know what I'm saying? That's what's going on. And this actually freaked Joseph out. So it took an angel of the Lord to speak to Joseph to keep, make him stay. And this is what happens. Matthew 1.21 says, uh, this is an angel speaking to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's in Isaiah chapter 7. But this Emmanuel, God with us, there were so many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his, his birth, his, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So many prophecies. Just there, There's a lot of specific prophecies, and then there's a lot of types and shadows and, and things that really point to Jesus. But it, it's like hundreds of them. And uh, I don't know what the odds are, but I, I've read you know, apologetic uh, statements about the odds that someone would actually fulfill all of those prophecies and that point in history in that way, and it's minuscule. It's, it's ridiculous that somebody could actually do all of that. But Jesus did it. He was the Messiah, and so, uh, but there's this idea that God is with us, Emmanuel, God with us, and this idea that God is with us gives us hope. Now, the, the name Emmanuel, Jesus did not, like, he didn't go by that name a whole lot. People didn't call him Emmanuel, they called him Jesus, they called him Jesus Christ, uh, all these, you know, rabbi, different words, but this, this name, Emmanuel, it means God with us, and it's less about a name that he was called, and it was more about a role that he played to literally bring the presence of God to mankind, to build a bridge, to make a way where there was no way, right? Sin had destroyed that path, destroyed that way, and Jesus comes to restore that path, and so he's Emmanuel, literally God with us. We just sang the song, God with us. And we find hope in that. 
But whenever this king arrived, King Jesus, not everyone had the same expectations of what that meant or who Jesus was. And it created a lot of different responses. And, and we talk a lot here at Northwood about the, the wrong expectations that people had of Jesus. We also talk about how the, we have a lot of wrong expectations of God, of Jesus, of people around us. And, and whenever we have wrong expectations, it usually leads to deferred hope. It usually leads to disappointment. But we have this thing in us that continues to hope in something. And we, we typically hope in lesser things. We hope in things that are, are erratic, that change. We hope in people, which, come on, the older you get, the more you realize that that's just a really faulty thing to hope in. You know what I'm saying? We hope in seasons of life. I find that a lot. Man, this, next, this season right here is very difficult. But the next season, that's, it's going to smooth out. You know what I'm talking about? Like, man, if I could just get married, dude, everything would just, it would just pan out. Like, I'll, I'll have someone that I can love and they'll love me. We'll meet all each other's needs. What is that? That's hope. That's what that is. It's hope. And, and, and typically that hope is deferred about seven hours into the marriage. It's like, huh, your breath stinks, you know? That's right. Every morning you wake up, your breath stinks. You know these movies where they like roll over at like, you know, like seven in the morning and they like go, hey. Every time they do that, I gag. I'm like, there's just, there's just no way. That's not real. People don't do that. Like not people that are actually married. It's like you look at each other and you don't open your mouth because you're like, you don't want none of this right here. <laughs> oh, man. All right. That was, that was more time that uh, I wasn't expecting. Little illustration there, bring you guys back in. <laughs> expectations, wrong expectations leads to def deferred hope. We talked about that least last week in regards to God's plan, but this week I want to talk about it in regards to Jesus. People had different expectations of Jesus and who he was and what he was going to accomplish. And so what I want to talk about is five different people, five different people who have five different wrong expectations of Jesus. And I want to start, for instance, with King Herod. To King Herod, who was the king of the Jews at the time, Jesus was a threat. Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to King Herod's throne, to King Herod's wealth. This guy was crazy, all right? He was the king of the Jews, though. And so whenever he hears that there's a, 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 someone who's been born who's claiming to be the king of the Jews, he had a problem with that. And, uh, and he was so threatened by it that in verse 16 of chapter 2, it says this. It says, then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, if you know the story about the wise men, uh, they were not at the manger scene. I know, just let that sink in. That's right, all your manger scenes are wrong. And there might have been more than three, by the way. <sighs> Keep moving. When Herod... He had been tricked by these wise men because they came and they said, hey, there's a king. We're here to celebrate the king. And he's like, oh, what king? And they're like, the king of the Jews. And so he gets people together and he's like, where is this king supposed to be born? And they're like in Bethlehem. And so th listen how crazy this guy is to find out who this king was supposed to be. Whenever they tricked him and they, they kind of got Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Okay, let's make this real. I want you, right now, I want you to think 
in our country, in, in our, let's, just, let's just say our city alone, that there's somebody who leads our city and, and there's a new person that, 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 there's some people that come and say, hey, there's somebody who's, you know, we heard who was born that's supposed to take over this city. And the leader of the city tries to figure out who it is and because they can't, they decide to kill every newborn. Can you imagine the devastation that would cause in a society? It's, it's absolutely insane. We read the scripture and then we just move on. We sing a song about it. These three kings. This guy was so threatened that he killed all the babies. All the male children, two years of age or below. Why? Because he had a wrong expectation of who Jesus was. He thought Jesus was a threat to him. And the way that I see this in our culture today is that there's this, this threat is still alive. You see, the enemy at every step of the way has been threatened by the plan of God. From the beginning, the serpent deceiving men. Jesus, and, and God promising that someone would come to destroy the serpent, right? To destroy that force, to destroy sin, to overcome it. We see all throughout, the, all throughout Scripture Every time God has a, God creates something, he creates a path that, that Satan counterfeits it, right? He, he, he comes up with a counterfeit and, and he seeks to undermine the plan of God. And in, in this season, if I had to kind of apply it to anything, I would say that there is a fresh onslaught against the plan of God in a different way for our context, but it's the same thing that we've seen forever. I think that one of the plans of the enemy is to undermine the word of God, the Bible. And I, so, so I, I enjoy apologetics. I enjoy kind of philosophical thinking. And, and I listen to a lot of people with a lot of different ideas. And I love listening to people who are not Christians talk about the Bible. Um, it's fun. Um, sometimes it's fun because they, they have heard certain statements and they, they throw their life into it. And it's just completely in, inaccurate. But other times I love to hear people wrestle with the truth of the word. I love, well, you know, there's this historical thing that I don't agree with. There's this, there's this, there's this. But, but the words in the Bible, there's something that's, that's divine about it. I'm not sure. They'll get all spiritualistic with it. And I love to hear them wrestle with the truth of the word of God. And the enemy seeks to undermine that truth because here's the deal. If the enemy can undermine the word of God, then what we're doing here today is pointless. We have no doctrine to stand on. Everything that I preach is just a good idea. It's not truth, right? And if the enemy can undermine the word of God, then he can undermine our faith. He can undermine everything that we're, that we're, that we're walking. And it's kind of like if you're standing on the shoreline of the beach and the waves keep coming in and it keeps like, you know, taking the sand out from underneath your feet. Before you know it, your feet are buried and you can't really move. It's the same, it's the same thing. There's a drip of undermining God's plan and truth today through the word of God and and the point here is that to Herod, he was a threat. Jesus was a threat. But God was with him, and he missed it. Emmanuel, he had come, and he missed it. Another group of people was Jesus' family. To Jesus' family, Jesus was just familiar. He was just familiar. In and, and, uh, John 7, there's a verse that says this. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. A lot of times we like to think that the people who are closest to us, our family, our friends, know us the best and, and would, would believe us the most. But we don't see that. We don't see that with Jesus. And you probably don't see it in your own family. 
the closest people are to you, for something happens where they, they trust you less, they, they don't believe you, and it happens with you to them too. Why? Because you know them. And so you, 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 you take it for granted. And, and Jesus' family takes them for granted. His brothers didn't believe them. Believe him. You can go read John 7. It's, kind of, it's almost kind of humorous what his brothers are kind of doing here where they're trying to get Jesus. Yeah, go. Go and do miracles and go prove yourself. But they were doing it in a sarcastic way. They were just like, because they didn't believe him. But we see Jesus, all of his friends and his family, and the people that he grew up with think the same thing. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 13, it says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. He went back home and went to his hometown. He went to his home synagogue. He went, he went back to his church, right, where he grew up. And uh, it says, they were astonished when he taught them. And, he said, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his, his mother called Mary or... His brothers is James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and we know his sisters. They've been with us. Where then did this man get all these things? And this is weird right here. And they took offense at him. They were offended at him. He was familiar. He was familiar. He's doing great works. He's preaching great sermons. He's doing all these great things. He's bringing truth where there's been lies. And the people that were closest to him miss it and miss it. I think of this in regards to those of us who have grown up in church. We've been around this a long time. We're in South Mississippi. Every single person has had some sort of exposure to Jesus, to God, to the church, to Sunday school, to some degree, the vast majority. And I'm going to be honest, I would much rather talk to someone who is um, struggling in their faith in regard with, with someone who is an atheist, an agnostic, someone who's far, far from God, than someone who has a small taste of it. Because there's something that happens whenever we grow familiar with the things of God and we take them for granted. They lose their power. It loses the luster. It's why people get bored with the gospel. It's why whenever we talk about the cross and the beauty of the cross, that, that a lot of us kind of doze off in certain ways is because it's kind of like, yeah, tell me something that can really apply to me today. Give me like a, a quick self-helpy type of thing. And it's like, do you realize that this is the greatest self-help thing that there is? Right, it's like this, this is the message of truth. Jesus is bringing truth and they can recognize the authority. They can recognize the way that he's bringing it in a different way. They see the miracles, but yet they still don't believe him. Whenever we grow up in church, young people, listen, man, I, I grew up in church. You just get used to environments that we were just in. You get used to just feeling the presence of God or experiencing or hearing truth. You get used to it, and your appetite sort of gets like, your, your palate gets, it uh, just grows kind of like, it all tastes the same. It's sort of like if you ate incredible filet mignon every single day of your life. Eventually, you're like, eh, it's just another filet. We need to be renewed daily in our understanding, in our taste buds of the kingdom, man. <laughs> our taste buds of that filet. That truth is a filet, but we cannot grow accustomed to the gospel. We cannot grow familiar with God's grace and his mercy. If you ever begin to talk to someone about God's grace and mercy, and you don't feel gratitude in your heart, 
you may be taking it for granted. You may be familiar with the things of God. We want spectacular. They want it spectacular. When it came to Jesus, the Messiah being born, everybody wanted something spectacular. They wanted a king. Somebody born, I'm sure, in the bloodline of a king with purple robes and gold and a big parade. I don't know. They wanted that, and what they got was just Jesus? The guy that was born to Mary, and they said they had never been together, but we're all pretty sure that they had, but they just kind of, yeah, that guy? The carpenter's kid? Yeah, like, (laughs) humanity hasn't changed, (laughs) y'all. Like, the same way that we think and feel about people and situations, the same cynicism that we have, yeah, it still existed then. It's the same thing. They were familiar, and they missed it, that God was with them. His presence was with them. To Jesus' disciples, to his disciples, Jesus was anticlimactic. He just was like, like, Jesus, you're saying a lot of good stuff, but like there's not an exclamation point to your story. You know what I'm saying? There's not like a, a win at the end of your story. I'll give you an example. In Mark chapter 8, it says that he began to teach them, his disciples, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. Verse 32, the beginning says, he said this plainly. Okay, he was being straight up, transparent, honest. Some people are like, oh, the disciples, they, well, they just weren't really sure about Jesus. And they, Jesus couldn't say it any clearer. He's like, all right, guys, let's sit down. All right, I know the crowd. The crowds are away. Like, let's sit down. Let me talk. Okay, I want to tell you again. The chief priests and the elders, they're going to arrest me, okay? They're going to... They're gonna, they're going to try me, and they're going to find me guilty. They're going to kill me, and then three days later, I'm going to come back. I'm going to rise again. I'm going I'm to come back to life. Got it? <laughs> Je- this is Jesus Christ, y'all. Yeah, right. Listen what happens. It says, this is so embarrassing. And Peter took him aside and began <laughs> to rebuke him. Like, okay, hindsight's twenty twenty, but like how dumb do you think Peter felt a few days later? You know what I'm saying? Like fast forward. He's like, you know, Bartholomew, do you remember that time that I took Jesus aside and I rebuked him? You remember that? Dude, you remember that? We all remember, Peter. We all remember. It's embarrassing. The Savior of the universe, Jesus Christ, is telling them what God's plan is. And they're like, it can't be that, Jesus, because, like, you're the king, and, like, you're supposed to do this and do that, and we're supposed to, like, be your, like, your right-hand men, right? Like, we're going to ride off into glory on horses and, and swords and shields and a lot of money and wealth, right? That's what we're doing. And Jesus is like, no, actually, I'm going to be killed. And, um, and whenever Peter begins to rebuke him, Jesus turned and he saw his disciples and he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't believe that he called Peter Satan directly. Like, I think he was actually speaking to the mindset that Peter had. And I think that because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Hey, you are falling into the same trap that everybody else is. 
wrong expectations of who I am and who I've come to, what I've come to do. And you are, you are thinking about how this affects you. You are setting yourself, your, your mind on yourself. And that's exactly what the enemy does. The enemy gets your mind off of God and onto yourself. So what he does, the enemy doesn't have to destroy you. And what I mean by that is he doesn't have to actually destroy your physical body. He doesn't have to destroy your finances. He doesn't actually have to do anything directly to you. All he, have to do, all he have to, has to do is undermine the way that you think. What happened in the garden is all the enemy did with Eve is plant a seed of doubt. That's all that was. Did God really say that? Did, okay, but like he said that, but what did he mean by that? Did he really mean that? You see, there is power in how you frame things. There's power. Honestly, y'all, everything that you read about on, on, in the news in regards to politics and everything else, all these arguments, it's all about how people frame stuff. I could, we could take this bottle of water right here and we could spend 30 minutes arguing about this bottle of water because everybody's going to have a different approach to it, a different angle to it. And I could frame up this, this bottle of water. I could say, well, you know, we, uh, we, we know this is a water bottle. However, how do we actually know that there's water in the bottle? Is it poison? It could be poison. Well, no, I picked up the water bottle. I just opened it and I took a sip and like, I feel, I feel okay. Yeah, but it could be a delayed, you know, time before the poison sets in. And guess what? I don't want to drink the rest of this water. I don't trust the maker of the water. I don't trust anything having to do with this water bottle. Why? Because somebody framed it differently. Framing of things is actually where a lot of the arguments are. It's how you frame what someone said. It's how you interpret it. It's how you twist it. Somebody could say something and have very pure motives, and you could still take it and twist it and use it against them. That's what they did to Jesus over and over. Peter was thinking in the wrong, wrong frame of mind. I think about how this applies to our life and how we can begin to think that Jesus is anticlimactic in our own lives. You know, um, there's been many times in my life where uh, we've, we've prayed big prayers, prayed big prayers. And, um, and I'll give you an example. There was one time there was somebody in like a ministry friend and their wife had cancer and um, we, she was, she was really doing bad, and we began to pray. I was like 18 or 19, or maybe, no, actually, no, 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 I was like 22, 23. And uh, we began to pray for her that she would get healed. I'm talking fervent prayer. And literally, th- hundreds of thousands of people all over the globe are praying for this, this girl. She was pure. She was a wonderful human being, just holy and just a great leader. Her husband was uh, a prominent person. We began to pray. I remember one time we were actually in, in Bible college at the time, and, and after Bible college, we got a text that she was in trouble. We all, we all ran back. to We had a house, we called a house of prayer, and then a bunch of us young people, we got together. We began to, like, I'm talking, pound our fists on the concrete, praying for her to be healed. And we prayed for a couple of hours just praying that God would sustain her and strengthen her. And we got a text that, that man, she made it through. Like whatever was going on, like she's stable. And we were, man, we gave glory to God. We were excited about it. And it was about a week later, we got another text that she died. And I remember whenever we got that text, literally it shook me. It was one of those, those first moments where like you pray for something and you like, you, you had enough faith 
You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> How many of you, you're like, Jesus, I had enough, like I had faith, like a mustard seed. She said, all I needed was that. That was like one of those prayers. And I struggled with, with like what that was because that was very anticlimactic. It was hard to like go around and tell that story to other people. Like it was re- it would be really cool to say, man, we prayed this prayer and Jesus came through. Like just at the moment of death, he came through and now she's healed and blah, blah, blah. And like that makes for good preaching. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what you tweet. Like that's what you post on Facebook and everybody loves it and shares it. And like thousands of people are like crying tears of joy. Instead, it was a lot of people prayed fervently and she died. My parents knew their family since they were born, basically. And I think that's just how this felt to the disciples. And I think there's a lot of things like that that feel that way to us. I talk to so many people and we have this tendency that like as long as Jesus is coming through in the clutch for us, that we think that he's with us. But the second he doesn't come through in the clutch and the worst case scenario happens, we feel like he's not with us any longer. And that's not who Emmanuel is. Emmanuel is God with us no matter what. No matter what. He's as close to us in those moments whenever our prayers are answered as he is in those moments whenever we feel like he's very far away and nothing we pray seems to happen. The point is not that our prayers are answered. The point is that our heart is changed and aligned with Jesus. And every time that I pray, I might pray for a result, but ultimately I know that I'm praying to come into alignment with God. To his disciples, Jesus was anticlimactic, but he was with them and they missed it. To the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, Jesus was a revolutionary. He was a revolutionary. And they hated him. He was messing with their stuff. In Mark 11, it's, uh, this is a story about, we all love this one, right, where Jesus flips the tables in the temple. You know the story, he gets really mad and he goes up. What it was is the outer, like the, their outer area of the temple uh, had become a place where they were changing money out, money changers, and they were selling things. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence to say that those People who were, they were kind of renting space in this high trafficked area outside the temple. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're getting a cut of that. Come on. It's a good business model. Am I right? That's what they were doing. And Jesus comes up and he begins to flip the tables. And he's like, this is wrong. This is wrong. You, you guys, this is like a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a place of prayer and worship. And you've made it a business. And he's like, this is, this is no good. No bueno. And he begins to push tables over. After this happens, it says this in verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They feared Jesus because he had clout with the people. He had gained influence with the people. And so he's teaching all of this stuff. He's confronting the system that is the very thing that's been in place for hundreds, thousands of years, right? And there's a spectrum to some of the things that they were doing. But, but in essence, it had been there forever. This is all they knew. And let me tell you something about the Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees hated God. They loved him. They loved the law. 
Like they loved the law. That's why they were so protective of it. That's why they wanted to, to, uh, to preserve it. And someone was coming in that was wrecking it. And it didn't go well with, with what, was, you know, what their plan was. And so they seek to destroy him. He's a heretic. He's a, he's a, you know, a God-hater. He's destroying the law. It's sort of like Saul or Paul later on where Saul was killing Christians. He's killing the people who were converting. And he thought he was doing the work of God and he was actually persecuting Jesus himself. But they were afraid of him. We see in Mark 14 verse 48, this is whenever the, this is the fulfillment of what Jesus was telling Peter like they're going to come and they're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me and all that. This is the fulfillment of that when Jesus is in the garden and, uh, G- and they come to arrest him. And, and I love how they come like in the middle of the night because all the people that Jesus had influence with were asleep. They would have to deal with all the crowds. Okay. They come and they arrest him. They, and, and, and this is what he says to him. Have you come out as a, have you come out to me to arrest me as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus is a little bit cocky. He's very confident. And another way of saying that, the robber, that word is a revolutionary. Also, that word is used to describe Barabbas, who, and in and, and, and the same translation, ESV, it calls him an insurrectionist. It's the same word all three times. He's like, are you, you guys are coming at me like I'm a dangerous revolutionary. That's what the NLT says. They believe that Jesus was a revolutionary. And you know what? They were kind of right. Depends how you look at the word. They thought he was a political revolutionary. They thought that he was building a kingdom, like what they thought of as kingdom, and, and that he was going to come at them with spears and swords. That's why whenever they come up to take him, one of Jesus' disciples cuts an ear off of one of the guys, and Jesus puts the ear back on. He's like, that's not what we're here to do. He's like, you're, you're, you're coming at me like this. But you know what he was? He was changing everything that they knew. And, and for me, guys, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I know that we like to put ourselves on Jesus' side of this moment. But you know where I put myself in, the, in this story? I put myself on the Pharisees' side. That's right. I put myself as the villain of the little story that we're talking about right here. Because what we always want to do is deflect. They're the Pharisee. I'm not the Pharisee. Right? Just like we talk about Joseph and his brothers. Well, I'm Joseph. No, we're not Joseph. We're Joseph's, Joseph's brothers. We, we always like to be the hero, and Jesus is the hero. We're on the other side of it because of sin. And so Jesus is, is here, and, and he's revolutionizing the things that they're doing, the Pharisees. And this is my question. What things, if Jesus was standing with us right now, like he was with the Pharisees then, what things would Jesus want to revolutionize in us? What things would Jesus want to reform in his bride, the church? What things have we been doing for hundreds or thousands of years that are, we've, we've drifted? Because if you don't think that we drift, you're probably way out to sea in the, in the middle of nowhere with a raft and not tied to anything. I'm heading due north. How do you know? You're in the middle of the ocean, man. We drift. I believe that Jesus questioned a lot of things then. And not using shame or guilt or condemnation. No, 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 no. Because a lot of times when somebody questions something or we question something, we usually have some of these things attached. There was a pure questioning of the motives and the hearts of the people. 
And I believe that is still at play in us. Jesus needs to continually question us. The Bible talks about how, uh, in, in Psalms, it's, it's God, search my heart. Search my heart. You know, there were some Pharisees who actually, um, they were very curious about the teachings of Jesus. We think Nicodemus, John 3, the conversation there. There's other conversations where, where there's a curiosity. There was a lot of, I mean, Joseph, the, the guy that helped to bury Jesus. There, there's religious leaders and people who were Jews who were, they weren't all against Jesus. They were, they were on the fence. Why? Because they, they knew what they knew for a long time, but there was something inside of them that was like, what he's saying, there's, there's truth in it. And I don't know how this operates yet. I don't know what this looks like yet, but I'm not going to reject it. Let's not reject things all the time whenever it comes up against who we are and what we're doing. In our personal lives, as a church, hindsight's always 2020, right? For those who are humble and broken, you can look back and, and you're like, man, I really missed it there. Let's continue to be moldable. As Jesus upended the organized religion at the time and claimed to be God and claimed to be all these things, he was called and he was labeled a, a heretic and a blasphemer, blasphemer, but he was actually speaking truth. And so God was with them and they missed it. Let's not miss it. The last person I want to talk about is Pilate. To Pilate, Pilate was the, the, the ruler. Uh, he was the Roman ruler at the time in this area. And you had Herod, uh, King Herod, who was over the Jews. You had, you had Pilate, who represented uh, uh, the emperor, Roman emperor at the time. He, he represented that and kind of led this area. And so whenever Jesus is arrested and, uh, and tried in a terrible way, lied about all that good stuff, they, they eventually they bring him to Pilate. And they want Pilate, they need, they need Pilate's, you know, authority to kind of handle what's going on. And, but anyway, Pilate's talking to Jesus. And they're having this conversation, and we're going to skip forward to verse 35. He says this, Pilate, Pilate he says, am I a Jew? Like, what, why, are you, why, why are they bringing you to me? Am I a Jew? Like, why don't you guys take care of it yourself? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. He said, what have you done? What have you done? Now, what's interesting about this is that Pilate is, um, in, in their system, obviously, if you're, if you're being brought before someone, obviously, you did something wrong. You're, you're assumed guilty. You're just assumed guilty. So Pilate's like, well, what, you, what did you do wrong? The, the court of public opinion has passed its verdict on you, right? We see that nowadays a lot. Somebody can make one post or, or whatever, and everybody assumes, you know, what's going on. I also, anyway, <clears throat> all right. Okay. What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, this is a huge statement. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Remember whenever he said, you coming at me as a dangerous revolutionary? This is his way of telling Pilate, hey, look, if my kingdom, what have you done? He kind of just goes to the point. If my kingdom was of this world, where you're headed with this conversation? Don't you know that my servants, the people, look, I've got 
thousands of people who have been listening to me teach for years now. I've healed so many people. I've got influence and clout. Like I, I could rally them to do what you think that I'm going to do, but I'm not doing that because my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. This is a big moment because here's the deal. If Jesus was to say that he was a king, he would be threatening the Roman government, the Roman king. Roman emperor. He would, he, would, he would be putting himself in a place where it's no longer just what's going on in that room. Now Pilate is responsible to take down this insurrectionist, this person who's coming up again. Jesus is so wise. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. You say that I'm a king. You're, 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 you're putting words in my mouth and saying all this kind of stuff. He said, I came for this purpose. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world. I've come to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He said, y'all think that I came to do, you know, take over and take over government to do all this. I didn't come for that. I came to bear witness of truth. And those who recognize that, those who have ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying is going to hear that truth and they're going to believe it and they're going to follow that. He's like, that's what I came to do. That's what I came to accomplish. And then Pilate said to him, and this is a question that Pilate asked kind of sarcastically, and this is a question that I believe our, our culture asks, is what is truth? Because to Pilate, Jesus was an inconvenient truth. He was inconvenient. The stuff that he was saying was just inconvenient. Jesus was inconvenient to a lot of people, right? But he's an inconvenient truth. But when he says this, I believe that this kind of hit on a soft spot in Pilate's heart. What is, what is, what is truth, Jesus? Like, I, I think that, that Pilate probably had to deal with a ton of philosophers he had probably been raised up in some of the best schools, right? He had been exposed to the biggest thinkers of the time. And he had heard debates about truth over and over and over. And he's like, here's another guy coming, <laughs> claiming to know truth. Here we go. What's truth, man? What is truth? And it's a question that we still ask today. We want to know the truth. We want to know the truth about ourselves that's why there's an infatuation with self-discovery. Because I want to know the truth about me. Who am I? I? I recently saw a bunch of artwork that was displayed somewhere, and, and it was a lot of young people that drew pictures uh, about, you know, their mental illness and different things. And, and, and a lot of their, um, their, their pictures that were very, very... Um, transparent there was this this key thing that I kept seeing in some of them and, and it had to do with self-doubt it had to do with who am I people saying things about them and and um, I, their identity we want to know the truth about ourselves. we want to know the truth about where we come from some of you are infatuated you're researching science, you're, you're reading books, you're looking at creation and where we come from, and you're infatuated with, with finding the truth of where we come from. Some of you are infatuated with trying to find the truth of which, which religion is true. Which religion? Some are, are, are on a journey to try to find which political party is the true good political party. 
Some are looking for a true good leader. We're looking for truth. Who is saying stuff that's actually true to satisfy the, the thing that's in us, that desire, that need for truth? Because if we can be sure about what's true, then we can put our hope in it, y'all. And then we can lay our heads down at night and not have fear. And we can talk with confidence to other people because we have truth. To Pilate, Jesus was an inconvenient truth. And to our culture today, and to a lot of us in this room watching online, Jesus is still an inconvenient truth. Some people, Jesus is an inconvenient truth because he tells us how to live our life. And like, we want the love of God. We like that part of Jesus, man. We like the grace and the mercy and the love. But we don't like the severity. We don't like the wrath, the, the holiness necessarily, because that, that provides a standard of living that we just don't want. I shared an article a couple days ago. And one thing I love about sharing articles is this. I love whenever, like, <laughs> you share an article that's, like, super positive, And everybody's like, share, 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 share. Like, 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 like. So good, pastor. <laughs> and then you share one that's like <clears throat> about is God like this horrible, violent God? You know what I'm saying? And the hard things of the Bible. And you share that and, and not as many people respond. But please don't go to my Facebook post and start liking it because you're like, <laughs> oh, I feel so guilty. <laughs> no. Half of you, the algorithm didn't even pop up in your feed because, you know, algorithms. But... It's a hard thing. It's the wrath. It's the severity of God. But the thing is, 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 is that because God is love and because he is just, there is both sides of the coin. God would not be a very loving God if he, if he did not punish sin. We, we, actually, we actually love to see people punished for grotesque horrible, violent crimes. Like there is, there's a part of us that's like justice, right? But, but we like it whenever that applies to other people. We don't like whenever we look at our own heart and we see the same sin, we see the same deceit, we see the same thing that has, has destroyed creation in us. We want God to take it easy on us. God, show your mercy and your grace to me, but show your wrath to them. Because they deserve it. Because we have sliding scales. God has a true, just scale. We're searching for truth. I really don't have time to go here, but I'm going to go there anyway. I, I think that our culture is struggling with what is truth around a very hot topic right now. It's always been like this for, I mean, it's been like this since, I mean, biblical times. And uh, it, it surrounds abortion. And abortion is nothing new. Killing kids is nothing new. It's always been. And listen, I know that there's a lot of nuance to this conversation. I've had the conversation with people that agree and people who disagree all over the place. I've read tons and tons of stuff. I understand the politics of it. I understand the finances of it. I understand the medical conditions of it. I understand the, the tension between a woman choosing life for her child or choosing life for herself. There's a lot of conversations to be had. But I'm not going to that. Because I think that whenever we do that, we bypass 
defining something that I think is really important is, is, is the truth about when life begins. Like, like, put all the other stuff over here. And even if, you've, if you're someone who has, has had an abortion or, or you've paid for one or you've been a part of it or you, you gave advice to somebody to do it, I, look, this is not a place of condemnation that you should feel guilty or anything like that. I'm very close to some people who have had abortions and, and there's no judgment there, okay? That's not what we're here to, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm trying to put out there. But the conversation still has to be has, had. What is the truth about when life begins? And can I say the same statement about this baby that I would say about a five-year-old? When does life begin? And I believe that the word alludes very directly to the fact that there's consciousness, there's, there's a life, a soul in the womb. John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist leaps whenever he, like, he's still in the womb. Uh, fear, we're fearfully and wonder, wonderfully made in our mother's womb, right? Like, like, like there's life there. And every generation has had to come up against this, this fight about what is true about that. And there's a whole lot of really good arguments and debates going on and people are fighting for either side and, and all that. And I mean good by everybody's, you know, everybody thinks their points are really good. But for us as believers, I, I don't go to those points and decide what I believe based upon those points. I have to go back to the statement, like, what is truth about a baby's life? And we start there, and then we begin to have all these conversations based upon that. We have to flip the conversation around with a lot of grace and a lot of love because there's a lot of pain in these conversations. And there's some people who have some very, very nuanced situations that they've had to make some very difficult you know, decisions. But there's a vast majority of people that it's completely a selfish decision as well, right? I mean, we're at a time, and this isn't everybody, but we're at a time whenever some people are celebrating their abortion day. I literally have trouble separating that from when I read about child sacrifice back in the day. It's, it's, it's very similar. It's just an updated way of saying it. But the enemy is sneaky. The enemy always seeks to undermine. The enemy always seeks to put these things in, and he's questioning truth. Did God really say that if you ate of the tree, if they ate of the fruit, that, that you would die? Like, did he really say that? Like, Okay, I mean, you've been, you've been doing really good for a long time. So, like, I mean, if you kind of, like, flub the numbers a little bit, you know, it's a white lie. It's like, did, I mean, is it really, uh, it, when does life really begin? I mean, is it there, is it that? Mm. It's the same tactic over and over and over. And so here we are, 2021, and we're at a spot where if we say what we believe and we stand for truth, that there's, like, this, you know, we're, we're, we, we brace ourselves for this onslaught. Like I'm bracing myself for the next couple of days of, for an email. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, you don't understand this. You don't understand. I, I, I probably don't because I haven't experienced everything that you've experienced. However, even my own experience, I don't trust. I have to trust something that's founded, that doesn't move a rock. Yeah. And I, I base it upon Jesus, <laughs> upon the word of God. <laughs> so did Jesus... He was an inconvenient truth. He was a revolutionary. He was, he was all these things. He was difficult to deal with. 
And today in this room, Jesus is, is confronting us, his word. If you think that I preach this message and I'm not convicted myself standing here, you don't know me. These are hard truths. These are hard. scripture. Every time I read it, it, it buffers me. It, it, it beats against like the inner part of me. That's why we must be in the word. That's what we must be uh, exposing ourselves to environments like this and, and, and uh, gathering together with the church, other people that are, that are like-minded and united in faith under Christ because we need this because there is a waterfall of deceit and lack of truth and lies in the world. And so with that, some of you watching online, some of y'all here today, uh, maybe some of the things I've said have, have come up against you. I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for those of us who, who are close to God, but yet we're still struggling in some of these areas. Because, y'all, we got to realize that God is with us. He's with us. Not to take him for granted that the king has arrived, but our expectations of him aligned with, with what he came to do. So let's bow our heads. Just get along with God. Father, would you search our hearts right now? God, we do not fi- feel that we have it figured out. We do not assume that the way that we think about every single thing is 100%. God, we are open to truth. We are open to you. If you are someone who is, you've been struggling with what is true, you've been struggling with what it looks like to believe in God, and, 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 but today you feel like this is a day that you, you really want to actually make a decision to follow Jesus to actually pattern your life after him, to say yes to the tug in your heart, to allow God to to intersect your life, to truly forgive you of your sin and to begin to walk on the right path, not for yourself, but because you realize that God's love for you is so great and he's been rooting for you and he's been pulling for you and he's been providing a way out of darkness and out of the pit for you through the person and the work of Jesus. And today you actually wanna take hold of that lifeline. Just say, God, I pray that you would forgive me. I surrender my heart to you. Take my life and use it for your kingdom. I give all that I am to you. I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf. And I receive your hope for today and for all eternity. In Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet. We're gonna sing one last song here in just a moment. Before we do, I wanna let you know if you said that prayer today, we believe that you made a decision that has changed your future And we want to come alongside you and help you in that journey of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So we'd love for you to take that card in the seat pocket right in front of you and fill it out. We'll have some people at the back of the room in the next steps area that you can take that card to. They want to, you know, answer any questions you have. And we want to reach out to you this week and give you some next steps to taking your journey with God. At the end of the service here in just a moment, as we sing, our prayer team is going to come up. And if God is dealing with you in some area, maybe you you need prayer. I want to encourage you to come up during this song and get some prayer. Allow these people to just pray for you. They're wonderful people. They love Jesus, and, uh, and they just want to love on you and, and pray for you, uh, whatever you're going through. But for the rest of us, I want us to take this next part of this song, singing about how God is with us, and I want us to truly believe that and declare it 
and cast all of the thing, all of the tension, all of the things that are clouding up our vision of who Jesus is. And I want us just to realize in this moment that God is with us. He's closer than a brother, right? 